0: Here's the official story. It's December 10th, 1993. Two Toronto police officers, Rick Shank and Glenn Aslett, are in a residential street in Scarborough, a working class suburb of the city.
1: These two police officers were sitting in their car. They see a
0: man approaching a car which they thought had the engine on. That's Bruce Livesey. He's an investigative journalist who's covered the Toronto police and he reported this story for us. The officers later said that they believed the area to be, quote, drug infested. So they were suspicious of the man. Maybe he's trying to steal the car. So they get out to ask him some questions, and when they
1: do, police say the man assaults Shank and then runs into one of the houses.
0: That man's name is Paul Reese. The officers said that Reese pushed one of them in the chest, and that would be a crime so they go into the house to arrest Reese. The police claim that they knocked on the door and told the woman who answered that they needed to get the man who just pushed them. Then, they say, Reese reaches across the threshold and punches one of them in the eye, out of nowhere. Police claim he resists, but they're able to restrain him. They cuff him and take him to the police cruiser. On the way back to the station, they say that Reese tried to kick out the window of the car.
1: So they stop the vehicle, and they restrain him, and then they continue
0: on their way. And when they finally do arrive at the station, they say that Reese goes totally limp. They claimed he was faking it, that he was pretending to be knocked out. Paul Reese is charged with assaulting a police officer. But that's only one side of the story. So the story
1: that Reese tells was, in fact, much more troubling, much more horrifying.
0: Reese still lives in Scarborough, and Bruce went down to meet him at a local bar.
1: We sat in the corner of the bar with the recording equipment, and he related the story in great detail.
2: My name is Paul Reese. I work for the Metro Convention Center. On that day, we was at home, me, my mom, and dad, my brothers and sisters, and some friends downstairs in the basement was playing domino. And we got this loud bang at the door. Boom, 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 boom. So my mom went to the door, and I follow after. So when she opened the door, there was um, two police officers standing in front of the door.
0: Those officers were Rick Shank. Glenn Aslan.
2: And they said to her they needed the guy, the guy that went in the house, that came into the house. So I said my I said to my mom, well, if they don't know what they're looking for, close the door.
0: Reese says that one of the officers then grabbed his mother and pulled her outside. And then another cop comes in the house and grabs a hold of Reese.
2: They grab Mom from out of the way now and pull Mom outside. Then Shanks gain entry to the house right Rushing me to the wall, boom, <clears throat> and tell me, get down your under arrest. I said, get down under arrest for what? I said, I ain't doing nothing. And with that, now uh, my dad came down the step and he pushed back dad. And then he got this flashlight, where he pushed up under my neck and braced me up to the wall and tell me to get down. So I said, I'm not getting down. Then he hit me inside the, the side of my ribs with the flashlight with this arm um, black thing. In the instant, I see he, hold his, he put his hand to his gun, so I grab his hands and me and him start a struggle, and we end up falling down the stairs. Then shortly after when we fell down, there's a bunch of cops then came in, and they grabbed hold of me, right, and then took me outside. They, they put on the handcuff outside of my house, on the ground. Then they draw me, to, pull me to the, um, the cruiser, and put me in the back seat to sit down. And we sit there like for about five to 10 minutes.
0: Now think about what Paul Reese is describing here. If his version of events are true, he was the victim of a home invasion, assault, and kidnapping.
2: When we left the house and we drove down Patterson and we get on to Danforth, Shanks take his elbow and started banging on the on the car door. Why is we going? So by the time we get to Birchmont, going beside the Pine Hill Cemetery. That's where they pull over in the Pine Cemetery, in front of the gate. And a second cruiser came up. And both of them exit the cruiser that I was in. Both of them get out and went to the cruiser that pulls
0: up. Reese says that Shank and Aslan get out of the cruiser to talk to the other cops. He doesn't know what they said, but he claims that when they returned, that's when the beating started.
2: I was sitting in the middle, and then he rushed in, and then he started beating. Glenn Aslingo on the right side, opened the door and pulled me out and he started beating me with the, the button.
0: Reese claims that at the same time, Shank was punching him.
2: Shank was still in the cruiser, and then he get out after. Glenn, I think he put his boots on, on my head and started to crush crush the one side of my face.
0: He says that they beat him so bad that he became unconscious. And then, according to
1: Reese, they stuff him back into the car and they take him to the division house. And that's where the videotape is shown of them literally carrying the limp body of Reese into the division house. And then they charge him with
0: assaulting a police officer. What Paul Reese didn't know at the time was that just months earlier, one of the police officers who arrested him, Richard Schenck, had shot and killed a black man in the same part of the city. And a few years later, he would kill another one. In the 1990s, Rick Shank shot and killed two black men while working for the Toronto Police. The investigations, inquests, and media coverage at the time raised a number of questions about his conduct. But Shank has never been found guilty of any wrongdoing. Throughout it all, his professional reputation is untarnished. He is supported by his colleagues, and he rises through the ranks. Shank's career reveals just how much power the cops have to shape a narrative and the limits of the few checks that the public does have on our police. I'm Arshi Mann, and from Canadaland, this is Commons. Bruce Livesey first came across Rick Shanks' name when he was working on another story. So this came about because
1: I began researching a story a few years ago for BuzzFeed about the issue of police accountability and was looking for cases, sort of egregious cases where police had done awful things and then really
0: nothing had happened to them. As he was looking into cases of possible police misconduct, one officer's name came up multiple times over the years Rick Shank.
1: To me, his case really stood out in that it raises big questions about how police are held to account. Shank was quite young when he joined the
0: Toronto Police.
1: He joined the Toronto Police Service in the early 1990s and
0: very early on got himself into trouble. Early in the morning of April 20th, 1993, Shank and his partner were patrolling in Scarborough. A young black man named Ian Coley was out at a local nightclub. He asked for a ride home from his friend, Mark Anthony Goodall. Unbeknownst to him, this
1: club and he were under surveillance by a squad called the
0: Black Organized Crime Squad of the Toronto Police Service. Shank and his partner were assisting the Black Organized Crime Squad that night. They were surveilling Mark Anthony Goodall. And they had this plan that two police
1: officers in a regular patrol car would pull them over and they would then search him. So Coley and this other fellow leave the club in a car and Rick Shank and his partner, who have been tasked to pull them over, do that. And when the car is pulled over, Coley gets out of the vehicle and walks away.
0: Shank and his partner start chasing Ian Coley.
1: And here we do not know really what happened. All we know is three shots were fired from the revolver of Rick Shank
0: and two of the bullets struck Coley and he died. In the days immediately after Coley was killed, anonymous police sources told the press that Shank shot because Ian Coley fired a shot at him. That wasn't true. We know for a fact that Ian Coley never took a shot. I'm going to cut out any of the suspense here. Rick Shank doesn't get charged. A probe from the Special Investigations Unit, the agency that looks into police misconduct in Ontario, fully cleared him. A coroner's inquest also didn't make any allegations of impropriety against him. But the details of the case are still important to talk about, especially in light of other cases that Rick Shank eventually becomes involved in. So here's the facts of the case that aren't in dispute. And just to be clear, I'm taking this all from contemporaneous media accounts that covered the inquiry. The Ministry of the Attorney General refused to release the SIU report to us, and they didn't give us a reason why. So back to the facts. Ian Coley was a 21-year-old father who was at the Hillies nightclub on a Monday night. He grabbed a ride with Mark Anthony Goodhall, who was going to drop him off at his girlfriend's house. The black organized crime squad were tailing Goodall, who they suspected of having drugs. So Coley realizes that they're being followed and he decides to walk the rest of the way. He asks Goodall to drop him off and he gets out. The two beat cops, Rick Shank and Chris Size, start to chase after Coley and he runs. They end up in a backyard. Shank fires three shots. Two of them hit Ian Coley. Now this next part is also entirely undisputed. He's lying on the ground with a couple of bullets in him.
1: None of the officers, but Shank in particular, did not give him medical assistance. And Shank later testified that he did not give him medical assistance because he was worried that
0: Coley had perhaps a second pistol on him. At the inquest, Shank was asked if it ever occurred to him to help Coley as he was bleeding out. Quote, it occurred to me, but I was not going to do it. I was not going to put my life in danger or other officers' lives in danger by approaching him. Ian Coley died at the hospital. At the inquest, the pathologist who did Coley's post-mortem said that he was surprised that Coley's wounds killed him. Quote, I don't think these are inevitably fatal wounds. We don't know if Coley would have survived if any of the Toronto police officers had given him first aid. Mark Anthony Goodall was initially charged at the scene with possessing a firearm, but the police dropped those charges. In his care, they found cocaine, scales, and a knife. The drugs were seized, but they didn't charge him in connection with any of that. Okay, so that's what both sides agree on. Now here's what Shank says happened. He claims that as he was chasing Ian Coley, he notices that he's carrying a gun. As is climbing a fence, Shank says he pointed the gun at him. He hears a loud bang, which he thinks is a gunshot. So Shank tackles him. They're grappling on the back of a covered truck. He sees Coley's hand moving towards him, the one with the gun in it. So he fires his gun into Ian Coley. And at one point, Shank claims that Coley says to him, quote, you're lucky I missed. As Coley bleeds out on the ground, Shank finds a semi-automatic next to him, and he picks it up with some cellophane and moves it. So that's Shank's story, and it's a story that both the SIU and the jury at the inquest agreed with. But at the inquest, Peter Rosenthal, who is the lawyer for Ian Coley's family, advanced another theory. Specifically, it had to do with the gun that the police say Coley had on him. The
1: issue of the pistol is interesting. Coley's girlfriend said that he did not have a pistol on
0: him when he left that night. The police allegedly found a pistol at the scene. It was a 45. The problem was, according to an SIU investigator, it didn't have Coley's fingerprints on it.
1: And the gun was not shot.
0: There had been no bullet discharged from the pistol. The nightclub that Coley had come from had metal detectors, so it's unlikely he had it on him when he was there. So where did the gun come from? At the inquest, it was suggested by a number of witnesses that the gun likely belonged to the driver of the car, Mark Anthony Goodall. They say that Coley likely grabbed it when he left the car. But Rosenthal accused the Toronto police of taking the gun from Goodall and planting it next to Coley after Shank had shot him. After all, the gun had never been fired. According to the SIU, Coley's fingerprints were never found on the gun, and Shank had actually picked it up and taken it to the police station before turning it in. Mark-Anthony Goodall had been charged with possession of a firearm before the charges were dropped, and even though cocaine was found in his car, Goodall was never charged for that. Rosenthal argued that the cops had made a deal with Goodall to let him off of the gun and drug charges if he kept his mouth shut. Now, there's never been any direct evidence to support this theory, and the inquest and the SIU both rejected it. We don't know why the SIU wasn't convinced by this line of inquiry, because again, we were refused access to their investigation. But we did get a chance to speak to Howard Morton, who was the head of the SIU at the time of the investigation into Rick Shank. The SIU was just in its infancy at the time.
3: The SIU was created in 1990 following a provincial report by Stephen Lewis, which was called for because three black men had been shot, I think, in perhaps a two-year period, maybe a little bit more or a little bit less. So the SIU was set up rather hurriedly.
0: And the relationship between this new agency and police forces was immediately antagonistic.
3: And... The feeling among the police, including chiefs and particularly the associations, was we can get, let me put it this way, we can get rid of the SIU. They're new, they're making mistakes, they're slow on their reporting, we have lots of criticisms of them. So if we give them a hard enough time, we may be able to get rid of them.
0: Now Morton is only speaking in generalities about some of the difficulties that the SIU had in its early years, and not specifically to the Shank case. But some of what he says lines up with the issues with the Shank investigation that were raised during the inquest. First, it took investigators over two hours to arrive at the crime scene.
3: We should be there right away and in a place like Toronto, and there's a shooting, there's no doubt that that's either death or serious harm. I would say we should be notified within no later than 15 minutes. I appreciate they had to go through maybe one senior officer to do it, but they would delay notifying us. And while we were in the dark, didn't know about it, the police force itself would be conducting what they called a parallel investigation on the scene. And when the
0: investigators did arrive, they didn't actually go to the scene of the crime to secure the evidence, which was especially an issue because Morton alleges that the crime scene was tampered with when the gun was moved. Remember, Rick Shank picks up the gun and takes it with him.
3: Back in those days, because we were so short of people, I, I went to at least half of the shooting incidents myself, and I'm not a trained investigator by any means. So that the crime scene, and I'm using the term crime in the sense that that's what it's always called, was tampered with in some cases officers would take the gun with them that they used to shoot or all sorts of other things were taken or picked up shell casings which are critical in determining the distance between the deceased or the shot person and the shooting officer
0: as we mentioned earlier in the particular instance of the coley case not only did shank move the gun but he actually took it with him to the station
3: First of all, Shank should not have even touched the gun he alleged Coley had. It should have stayed wherever it was, but it should have been seized. Somebody should have watched over it until an officer who was not part of the incident but would have become part of the parallel investigation came to safeguard it. It should not have been removed from the crime scene. Imagine if that happened in a If Joe shot Mary, I mean, Joe picks up the gun, he says that Mary has and takes it home. I mean, the police obviously would deem that to be incriminating evidence. So it shouldn't have happened, unquestionably.
0: And then there's the fact that Morton says police officers often didn't cooperate with SIU investigators.
3: We did not use the term subject officer and witness officer back then when I was there. So that any officer who was at the scene or in any way involved was required by the statute, in my view, to do two things. Number one, provide a copy of his or her notes forthwith, because officers are supposed to do their notes at the end of a shift, right? And the second thing was they were required, in my view, to be interviewed by SIU. And what we found is that they would either initially refuse or dilly-dally for months and months and months. Of course, they would be speaking to a lawyer, as is the right to do, so that when we finally did get notes and or interview or both, it had it obviously been very carefully poured over by the lawyer.
0: Rick Shank didn't talk to the SIU for over a year. Shank was cleared by the SIU in July of 1994, and at the time, Howard Morton called him, quote, courageous. When Paul Reese was arrested by Rick Shank and his partner Glenn Aslan back in 1993, he had no idea who Ian Coley was. He didn't know that Shank had shot and killed a black man months earlier, and that he was being investigated by the SIU and was refusing to do an interview with them. Reese says he sustained substantial injuries during his arrest.
2: My broken teeth, right? I couldn't eat for a couple of days. My eyes were swelling, My nose was swelling, My mouth was busted.
0: Reese says that the damage to the wall from when he was arrested at his mother's house is still visible.
2: Yeah, I hit my head. Up to now, the print is still in the house. Because I went there to pick up mails, and I saw when the girl opened the door, I saw the body print is still indented in the wall.
0: Reese was charged with assaulting a police officer, and his case went to trial. But the
1: thing that stands out about this case is that the trial judge found there was absolutely no cause for Shank and his partner to arrest him. He had done nothing wrong. It looks like, in fact, not only had no one done anything wrong, but they got the wrong guy. It was his brother who'd gone from the car into the house not him, so they didn't even know who
0: the hell they were looking for. While the trial judge indicates that she has issues with Reese's testimony, she says there are, quote, signs of bias with his testimony and that the evidence does not support his claims about the extent of his injuries, she does ultimately find Reese not guilty. Not only does the judge find Reese not guilty, she has some unkind words for the Toronto police. Quote, The court is troubled by the conflicts in the evidence among crown witnesses, and particularly with how the evidence of officer counsel conflicts with the videotape. The court finds the evidence of Constable Schenck to be unreasonable, particularly his suggestion that you were faking. Remember, the police claimed that Reese was pretending to be unconscious. The court completely disagreed. The attitude shown by this remark, reinforced by his demeanor of this witness on the stand, detract from his credibility. The judge there is referring to Rick Shank. The Crown appealed the judgment. The appeal judge did state that according to his reading of the trial judge's ruling, the trial judge had concluded that Reese did in fact push Shank. The appeal judge also found that the trial judge made errors in her decision. But ultimately, the judge decided it was not in the best interests of the community to order a new trial and the appeal was denied. According to Reese, he received a settlement from the Toronto police. But he's still upset by the incident. He doesn't understand why the police would just barge into his home and do that.
2: I Never had no charge with a sergeant or police officer. I never had nothing resisting with the officer. And suddenly, an officer come to my door and questioning my mum. I just reach out and punch him for no reason. I, I really felt hurt at the time, because I know I didn't do nothing wrong. But the way he handled me was wrong, because I, I didn't do... I did, number one, I did not touch him, period. I didn't touch him at the door. And that was a statement I get in court saying that I reach out over my mum and punch him in the face. For what? For what? I he did not he didn't, Nobody he didn't even touch Mamas yet. It really, really bothered me. Really bothered me. And I wish that this, you know, incident never happened.
0: So what happens to a police officer after this kind of a judgment? What were the consequences for Shank and his partner? There were no consequences.
1: The only consequence was that the public had to pay, you know, there was money paid to prosecute this case. But there was a a settlement reached
0: by the Toronto Police Service and his attorney to settle a lawsuit. In just a few years, Rick Shank would be involved in another high-profile case of alleged misconduct. This time, it would end with him being charged with manslaughter. On Easter Monday, 1997, Shank is working with a drug squad. His team gets a tip from a paid informant that a Jamaican man named Hugh Dawson was going to sell some drugs. So Shank and his crew decide they're gonna arrest him after the deal goes through.
1: It was done very hastily. This decision, we're gonna we're gonna take him down today, and it, he kind of pulls in his crew in very quickly to do it. So there was a lot of disorganization, it
0: seems. After their informant buys $600 worth of cocaine from Dawson, the cops decide to go get him. They claim later that the informant told them that he had seen that Dawson had a gun in the car. So their plan was
1: that Dawson was going to be was traveling up a road in Scarborough. He was going to come to a light, and they were going to box in his car and ask him to get out of the car, and they would arrest him. That was the plan.
0: And that's not at all what happened. All of the officers are dressed in plain clothes and are in unmarked cars. The idea is to have a car
1: that would stop in front of him, a car that would block him on the side, and a car that would stop him from behind. So there'd be three police cars wedging him up against the curb so they they couldn't move, they couldn't go anywhere. That's what you're
0: supposed to do. That's not what they did. Instead, they only had two cars, one in front of Dawson and another behind. What they did is they had
1: two cars, they had a car in front of Dawson's vehicle, they had a car beside it, and the car behind them was a civilian vehicle full of, I think it was a family of five, including children. This all occurs at a um, a street
0: light. So the cars have all stopped at the street light, two lanes going one way the cops get out of their cars and charge Dawson's vehicle. And remember, they're not wearing police uniforms. So Dawson, who was a drug dealer,
1: possibly thought that he was being taken out by his competition in the drug trade and not by police. And that might've governed his actions. If he had known it was the police, he might've simply gotten out of the car and given himself up. But according to witness testimony, They rushed the vehicle, and Dawson just
0: might have freaked out. What happens next is the part that's in dispute. Witnesses, including the family that was behind Dawson's car, claimed in court that the cops broke Dawson's windows and then he tried to reverse out of there. The cops claim that they identified themselves as police officers and then Dawson tried to escape, so they smashed his windows. Another cop, Constable Lorelei McIver, also dressed in plain clothes, runs to the civilian car that's parked behind Dawson with her gun out. And this is the part that I find really shocking. She yells at the woman driving the car to ram it into Dawson's vehicle. In court, the woman said that she was convinced that this was a carjacking and that she was going to die. So this was so badly
1: managed that you had a police officer holding a pistol trying to get a civilian to drive her vehicle into Dawson's car to stop him from driving away.
0: So that's how badly this kind of all went south. Two cops, Rick Shank and Rajiv Sukumaran, end up firing their guns. Sukumaran shot once and didn't hit Dawson. Shank hits him nine times. Shank and Sukumaran both claim that they shot because Dawson had grabbed a hold of Shank's gun. Dawson bleeds out, and dies. According to the police, the last words he spoke was, quote, okay, I give up. I'm dead. The cops had claimed that their informant told them that Dawson was armed. They were working under the, the wrong assumption that he was armed, he was not. In less than five years, Rick Shank had shot and killed another black man, and this time, there's no question as to whether or not he had a gun. Once again, the police service rallies behind Shank. David Boothby, who was the chief of police at the time, comes to the scene and issues a statement. Police say that Dawson had tried to grab Shank's gun, and that's why they had to shoot him. Now, at the time, the SIU had an agreement with all of the police services that the police shouldn't put out statements about any SIU investigations, and that actually became a law in 1999. But here was the chief of police completely preempting the SIU. André Moran was the head of the SIU at the time of the killing of Hugh Dawson. The
4: police services originally, uh, in the 90s, they would quickly issue statements, official ones, leaked ones, to illustrate the police services position, which normally would be to exonerate or provide some kind of blame, blame the victim statement. And that would taint the public's view of the case, witnesses' views of the case, and police officers who wouldn't want to contradict the, uh, the lead uh, statement of the police service. When a police chief issues a statement supporting his officer in the middle of a SIU investigation, you know not only does it reach witnesses, police witnesses, the public, but it affects your jury pool as well. It was extremely detrimental to the integrity of the SIU investigation.
0: And just like with the killing of Ian Coley, the SIU says the officers didn't cooperate fully. Initially, they refused to talk to the SIU. And according to press reports from the time, all of the officers, both the ones directly involved in the takedown and those that were witnesses, met together in secret at least twice. In general, witnesses aren't supposed to confer with each other during a criminal investigation. And it took days for investigators to get the evidence that they needed. Andre Morand says that this often happened during SIU investigations because of the involvement of lawyers from the police union.
4: Unfortunately, up until very recently, the first people that the police would notify before the SIU were police union lawyers who would then attend the scene and write the police officer's notes, sometimes in a group. I mean, it's crazy. It makes no sense at all. And then the SIU was called, a clear breach of the law. The law says the SIU shall be notified immediately, not an hour later, not the next day, not after the police lawyers have written police officers notes. Immediately. It it cannot be any clearer. And because of the fact that there are no consequences, I mean, to uh, breaching that law, it's a free-for-all.
0: Andre Moran and the SIU, eventually did charge Rick Shank with manslaughter. It was the first time ever that the SAU had charged a police officer in connection with a shooting. During the trial, the details of the botched takedown all come out. But the Toronto police stood by their man. During the Dawson trials, always
1: police officers there showing their support. Chief David Boothby, who was chief of the police at the time, he showed up in court one day, so the police institution, the Toronto Police Service, had thrown their support behind Shank. He was their guy. And in their mind, he had done nothing
0: wrong. Andre Moran believes that the chief showing up was entirely inappropriate.
4: It's not unusual that in an NSIU case, a whole bunch of officers show up to show their support. It's rare that the police chief shows up It's intimidating to witnesses, it doesn't advance the case, I mean, there are various ways to show your support. But stacking a courtroom full of police officers, on duty, off duty, and the police chief, makes it
0: intimidating for the court
4: process to unfold.
0: Shank's prosecution came down to the question of whether or not Dawson had grabbed the officer's gun. The jury wasn't able to come to a consensus, so the judge declared a mistrial. Another trial was held and they went over much of the same evidence. This time, the jury acquitted Rick Shank fully. Despite the fact that Shank was found not guilty of manslaughter, there's no question that something went wrong in this takedown. Shank was in charge, and because of the police's actions, an unarmed man was shot nine times and died. Does that kind of screw up at least get you fired or disciplined? There were no consequences to Officer
1: Shank that we know of. And, you know, we know Mr. Shank kept getting promoted,
0: so clearly they didn't have any issue with him. Rick Shank continued to be an officer in good standing with the Toronto Police. But in 2013, he was again accused of misconduct. This time, the allegation came from a defense lawyer working for a client who had been arrested by the Toronto Police. The man's name was Veli Chinmani, a self-admitted cocaine dealer. So Veli
1: Chen Man is a young Southeast Asian drug dealer, a cocaine dealer in the uh, Toronto area in his 20s, going about his business. And at some point, the Toronto Police Service, the drug squad gets wind of him. And for about, I think it was like over a two or three year period, they're trying to get him. They're trying to arrest him. They they pull him over and they search him, but they never. He's clever enough to always to ensure that he's never got drugs on him, and they can't get him. So one day, in two thousand and eight, he drives down to downtown Toronto in his car, and he leaves the car in a parking lot, and goes off and does his clubbing, and spends the night at a friend's place. And around ten o'clock the next morning, he goes back to his car and the windows have all been smashed in and his dirty laundry is being taken and about $4,500 have been taken in of his rent money. And he calls a friend and he says, I think the cops broke into my car. And then about uh, 10 days later, a few days later, the police arrest him as part of a big operation they were doing focusing on meth dealers, even though he was a cocaine dealer. So the case goes to trial in 2013, about five years later, and by then he has hired a very talented criminal defense lawyer by the name of Lior Shemesh. And Shemesh looks at the evidence and comes to the conclusion that her client, Mr. Chen Manning, was framed and had been framed by Shank and his crew that were
0: going after this meth
1: operation.
0: Here's a recording of Bruce's conversation with that defense lawyer, Leora Shemesh, who he spoke to while reporting a story for BuzzFeed a few years ago. Bruce recorded this for a print story, so the audio quality is going to be a little bit lacking.
5: So they say they follow his car to the downtown core and watch him go into a club. And they they watch the car overnight, and they peer inside the window, and they believe that they can see the drugs in the backseat. They smash the windows, they go in, and they say they find this bag of seven kilos of meth.
0: Now there's a few problems that Shamesh sees with this story. First, she says that Manny wasn't a meth dealer.
5: My client never dealt in meth. He was a coke dealer. Didn't even know what meth was.
0: And then there's the fact that Manny was wiretapped. So how did he react to the alleged seizure of $300,000 worth of drugs?
5: Sure enough... There is no reaction. What he does is he calls his lawyer and he says, you know, these fucking cops are at it again and they broke my windows. You know, you lose a million dollars worth of drugs. You're going to be making some phone calls. You what I think You're going to be concerned about who is owed uh, that money and who to pay back and what are we going to do? And there would have been a flurry of activity on the phone, right? People would be calling each other and saying, what are, what are we doing?
0: What Shamesh argued in court happened was that the police were frustrated that their surveillance of Chen Manny hadn't turned up anything. So they planted the drugs on him. And she argued that the drugs came from Rick Shank, a little over a week before the police broke into Chenmani's car, Shank had allegedly stopped two people in a van that were leaving a meth lab. Shemesh says he found 52 kilos of methamphetamines in the back. She claimed in court that Shank seized the meth and then let the people go.
5: They didn't get their names. didn't get their ID said they were like Asian nationals, as he called them, and didn't get any information from them. makes no sense, even impossible. The story from Shank is I certainly pulled them over, and the property report suggests that he did seize a massive amount of methamphetamine. The question is, why didn't he arrest them and bring them into the station?
1: Like police procedures, if you find $3 million worth of meth on someone, you usually arrest them let alone in find out who actually they
0: are. And then just over a week later, Shank's old partner, Glenn Aslan, claims that he sees kilos of meth inside Chinmanny's car, so he breaks the windows and seizes it. That's the same Glenn Aslan that, alongside Shank, arrested Paul Reese. Shamesh said that it would be hard to believe that Chinmanny would leave $300,000 worth of drugs in a car in downtown Toronto overnight. The judge in Chinmany's case, Michael Dembro, didn't believe what Shamesh was saying.
5: The judge that I was appearing in front of was a judge who just could not get past the notion that this was possible. The oh. police could be that, that they would put together this concerted effort to lie and, per, you know, perpetrate a fraud on the court. He didn't think, he, he thought that was out of the realm of possibility.
0: He found Chen Mani guilty and sentenced him to prison. Neither Rick Shank nor Glenn Aslan were found to have done anything improper in this case. Rick Shank was recently promoted again. He's now an inspector with the Toronto Police Service.
1: And in fact, his last promotion occurred under Mark Saunders, who was the first black police chief, which really says something about Saunders, who claimed that he was trying to bring the Toronto Police Service into the present day in terms of race relations. And yet, you know, he seemed to be comfortable promoting someone who had this very long track record
0: of problematic
1: policing, especially in terms of minority
0: communities. We reached out to Rick Schenck and the Toronto Police Service with questions for this story. At the time we're publishing this, they haven't responded. Rick Shank today makes over $170,000. From the outside, it doesn't appear that the two black men he shot and killed were an impediment to his rise through the Toronto Police Service. Paul Reese isn't particularly surprised. In his view, his experiences with Toronto Police over the years have sometimes involved racism.
2: They have a profile about people like, you know, black people like, I don't know if they have a vendetta against us or... What is the problem? Why they target us, right? I don't see the reason. the reason for it, but it happens.
0: And Shank is one of the few officers to ever be charged in connection with a police killing. The SIU was created 30 years ago. And in that time, only one police officer in Ontario has gone to prison for killing someone while on duty. That was James Fursillo who shot and killed Sammy a team on a Toronto streetcar in 2013. Other provinces have similar records. The truth is that when a police officer kills someone in this country, even an unarmed person, they're very unlikely to get charged. They're even less likely to go to prison. Isn't it bizarre that in almost every single instance where a police officer kills someone, they're deemed not to have done anything criminal? In a case like Rick Shanks, in which the SIU thought they had enough evidence to bring charges against him, it didn't even hinder his career. He still gets to be a police officer. that's your episode of Commons. If you want to support us, click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode was reported by Bruce Livesey. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by Bruce Livesey, Jordan Cornish, and me. Our managing editor is Andreas Schmidt, and our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer.
6: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com.